Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you, and welcome to the Edge Church. My name is Stephen Van Den, and I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you joining with us again today as we continue on in our sermon series that we're calling Jesus Encounters. Really, we're, we're just opening up God's Word together. We're looking into the Gospels at, at a number of different stories of various people who had encounters with Jesus, all different uh, people from all different kinds of uh, walks of life, men, women, children, um, people of high position, people of low position, people who are wealthy, people who are poor, people who are healthy, people who are sick, the educated, the uneducated, uh, different ages, races, status, position, season of life, all kinds of people. And the scriptures record all of this for us because for one, God wants you to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, what you've experienced or what you haven't, what you've done or what you haven't, what you've, where you've been or where you haven't, that God wants you to encounter him. And secondly, these stories of face-to-face Encounters with Jesus have been given to us to teach us and reveal to us more fully who God is. To, to teach us about how we are meant to respond to God, how we're meant to walk with him, how, who he has made us to be in light of him and to point us to Jesus that we might encounter him for ourselves. And so this morning we're going to look uh, together at an encounter between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. I'm going to pray for us and just invite the Lord into our time. So if you'd bow your heads with me, uh, Father God, we just come before you today in the name of your son, Jesus. God, thanks for this opportunity for us just to open up your word. God, thank you that you have given us your word, God, that we might know you that we might know, Lord, your heart, your truth, and God, that you might transform us by it. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to every heart. God, I pray that you would minister to every life, Lord. God, may our ears be open to hear from you today, our hearts be open to receive of you. God, teach us today. Lord, thanks just for being present right now. God, thanks for the work that you're doing even now. And God, I pray that for every single one of us, Lord, that we would walk away from this time having heard your voice and received of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. Um, One of the things that I really do hope for you is that as you're joining together with us, whether that's virtually or in person, that as we open God's word, that you would open God's word. My hope for us as a church is that we're not just good at listening to people tell us about God's word, but that we're actually really good at opening up his word for ourselves. So if you have a Bible, great. If you haven't, start to bring one with you. That would, I think, help you out a ton. It's a great way you can circle stuff, underline stuff, take notes in it, hold on to it. But but anyways, you, maybe you have the Bible app on your phone. Open that up to John chapter 3. Uh, and our story here begins in verse 1 where it tells us this. It says, now there was a Pharisee, uh, you can underline that word, uh, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling Council. Now, now, this one verse actually tells us quite a bit about this man named Nicodemus. First, it tells us that he's a Pharisee. 
And now in our day and time, that word Pharisee is almost always used negatively. It's almost kind of like a Christian curse word, right? It's something that gets used to, to label people who are deemed legalistic or, or Bible thumpers or, or sometimes just people we disagree with. But in Jesus' day, this wasn't so. Actually, in his book, Name uh, titled Accidental Pharisee, Larry Osborne says this. He says, today, when most of us hear the word Pharisee, we immediately conjure up images of hypocritical, narrow-minded, puffed-up spiritual losers. But in Jesus' day, being called a Pharisee was a badge of honor. It was a compliment, not a slam. And it's because first-century Pharisees excelled in everything we looked up to spiritually. They were zealous for God completely committed to their faith, theologically astute masters of the biblical text. They obeyed even the most obscure commands and they even made up extra rules just in case they were missing anything. Their embrace of spiritual disciplines was second to none. Yes, they could be a bit harsh and arrogant at times, but most of their contemporaries took it all in stride. After all, they had earned the right to boast and look down on everyone else because they were paying a price no one else was willing to pay. The, the, the Pharisees were this select group of people. They were the top of the religious pile and, and everyone knew it, that they, they were the most righteous of them all. Even Jesus knew this. If you were to go back into Matthew 5 and, and listen to G, Jesus' sermon on the Mount, you, you'll see here that Jesus takes six of the laws of Moses and he expands them. He makes them seemingly more impossible to follow. So Jesus will say, you've heard it said, and then share whatever the law is. And then he'll say, but I tell you, and he'll redefine it. So, so for instance, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But then he goes on to say, but I tell you, do not even be angry in your heart towards your brother or sister. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's like, whoa, Jesus, right? Like, Ah, that seems a little bit extreme, Jesus. That seems a little bit harsh, Jesus. Like, like, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty confident that I could make it through my whole life without killing somebody, right? Like, like I feel like that seems reasonable. But, but, but to not ever be angry in my heart towards someone else? I mean, is that even possible? And really, this is the whole point that Jesus is making, that it's impossible for us to earn our way into God's favor by following a moral code, even a biblical one. It's impossible for us to earn our way into heaven to God with our good works or our good ways. Our deeds can never be righteous enough, no matter how good. God's holiness is beyond our very best deeds. And to make sure that no one misses this point, Jesus bookends these six statements with two really lofty and remarkable comments. The first one at the beginning uh, is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end, to make sure we totally get it, he says in Matthew 5, 48, he says, listen, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. How's that working out for everybody? How you doing with that? 
right? Jesus is saying to the people that there's obviously no way for them to be perfect like God. But similarly, there really was no way they could surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And for the listener in that day, they would have agreed with this. No, no one was hearing Jesus and thinking, you know what? I, I feel, yeah, there's no way I will be perfect like God. But I, I don't know. I think I got a decent shot at surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees right? There was nobody thinking that. So ultimately, they heard both statements equivalently, right? They were thinking, I have as much of a chance as being as perfect as God as I do as being as righteous as the Pharisees. So, so really, I'm lost then. There's no hope for me then to enter the kingdom of God based on my works and my goodness, which is exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you can't Look to yourself to be saved and enter God's kingdom. If your righteousness could get you in, then certainly the Pharisees would be in. They're at the top when it comes to, the, to religious devotion and practice, but religion doesn't save, Jesus does. So, so Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's this, in this elite select group, but not only is he a Pharisee, it tells us here that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is called the Sanhedrin, which is an even more select, more elite group of people. In fact, there's only 71 of them in all of Israel. They, they were like the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. They investigated heresies and, and conducted trials and, and wrote laws. They, they were the most powerful elite of the elite, and Nicodemus is one of them. It'll tell us also here that, that Nicodemus is an older man in verse 4, which puts him in an even more elite category because, because older men were more respected, were more honored. And later in verse 10, Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel, Israel's rabbi, which some commentators believe he was the foremost theological expert of the Sanhedrin, which made him the guy, Okay. This Nicodemus isn't just a Pharisee and he's not just a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He's not just an older, respected man. He is the teacher of Israel. He is at the top of the elite. And one day this man has an encounter with Jesus. What, what will Jesus say to him, right? This teacher of teachers, this leader of leaders, this devout, religious, righteous man. What will Jesus say? Let's see. It says, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. It says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So, so, so here's Nicodemus and he's, he's coming to Jesus and he's not a bad guy, okay? Like, like Nicodemus represents those of us who want to get it right, who want to do it right. And he wants to get it right so bad that he comes to Jesus at night, right? So we got, we got Nick at night here, right? Shout out to Nickelodeon back in the 90s, right? We have Nick at night. And, and, and some people believe here that, that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, because he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. And, and that's possible. That, that could be true. But, but on the other hand, there's actually a precedent amongst the Pharisees that, that whenever you wanted to really study the Torah, 
Whenever you really wanted to dig in God's word, which is ultimately Jesus, who Jesus is, right? It's that they would study at night. They would say, study at night. Get your candle out and read the scrolls so that you could be free of every other distraction. So perhaps Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he wants to give Jesus his full attention. Perhaps he, he comes because he really just wants this one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus. We don't really know why he comes to Jesus at night. The text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that he does come to Jesus, that he pursues Jesus. And, and really that is something, okay? Like we ought to be careful in our own lives that we don't uh, spend too much of our time judging people for how they come to Jesus rather than celebrating the fact that they have indeed come. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Now pause there a second. We know. Who, who's the we here? Who is Nicodemus talking about? Who's he referring to? Make a note of that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But he says, we know that you're this teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And, and Nicodemus here is partly right, isn't he? I mean, Jesus is a teacher who has come from God and he and all of us would do well to take his words to heart and to apply them, right? Because he has much truth to teach us about who God is and about this life and, and how to live it, about who we are and, and what we were, we were created for to be and to do, right? Nicodemus is right in saying that Jesus is a teacher from God, but that's not all he is. And it's at this moment that Jesus just jumps in in verse three, it says that Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I love this because, because Jesus jumps in with an answer to a question Nicodemus hasn't even asked yet. It's like Jesus knows what he needs to know. And he does. In fact, right before this encounter, with Nicodemus at the end of John chapter two, it tells us that Jesus is performing miracles and wonders and, and people are coming to faith in him. They're, they're believing in Jesus. And at the very end of John chapter two in verses 24 and 25, it tells us, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And then right after this is when Nicodemus shows up to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus already knows him. Jesus already knows what's in his heart and what's on his mind. And the reality is that God knows you too, right? Not your pretense, not the fake you, not the you you try to put in front of everybody, but the real you, the, the whole you. He knows your heart, your thoughts, your desires, your intentions. Nicodemus thought he was coming to interview Jesus, but Jesus turns all of that around and he does this interview of Nicodemus which is why he says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Because Jesus knew what Nicodemus actually needed now, now this whole thing, this from Jesus would have seemed really strange for anybody to hear, born again. But, but, but especially strange for a man like Nicodemus, who is the most righteous of the righteous, this teacher of teachers. Certainly if anyone would see the kingdom of God, if anyone would earn his favor, it is him. Nicodemus would have expected Jesus to say something like, you won't see the kingdom of God unless you're a Jew, right? Unless you follow all of the laws and live righteously because they believed that as a Jew, they had a foot in the kingdom of God, but that's not what Jesus says. 
Jesus says only those who are born again can see the kingdom. Now, now, now Nicodemus clearly misses what Jesus is saying here because in verse 4 he says to Jesus, well, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, that sounds like a totally rational, logical question if you take Jesus' words literally, doesn't it? I mean, if you take just, you must be born again, right? Like, Nicodemus seems right on point here. I I mean, you'd be like, hold on a second, Jesus. You're saying, I need to be born again, right? I'm not sure if you know how this whole birthing thing works, Jesus, right? But I'm going to say, that doesn't really, one, seem possible to me. Two, that seems a little bit disgusting to me. And thirdly, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say my mom's not going to be down for that, right? Like, like she is out on that idea, all right? This isn't logical. And so in verse 5, Jesus answers, he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, right, I'm not talking to you about a second physical birth, but a spiritual birth from God, a rebirth that isn't natural, but supernatural, meaning that you can't do it. It's not in your control. You can't give yourself this new birth. Only God can. Jesus isn't telling Nicodemus that he isn't physically alive, right? He's telling him that he's not spiritually alive. And what he needs is life by the Spirit. He is spiritually unborn. What Nicodemus needs is not religion. He's got plenty of that, and and perhaps you do as well. What Nicodemus needs is life by the Spirit of God. Not, Not merely an affirmation of the supernatural work of God in Jesus, not just affirming Jesus supernaturally, right, but to experience the supernatural work of God in you, right? Not a work of your flesh, but a work of God's Spirit bringing you to the life of, to the life of God through Jesus. Now, Nicodemus knew the Old Testament scriptures, okay? He knew the scriptures better than just about anyone, so he should have picked up really on what Jesus was speaking to here in referencing being born of water and the Spirit. But back in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, listen to this. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus here in this moment with Nicodemus is affirming this promise of God in the Old Testament. He's saying this promise has come with me. And this is what it means to be born again, to be cleansed of your sin, sprinkled with the water, the blood of Jesus, washing away your sin as you turn from that sin and turn towards Jesus, knowing, loving, trusting, obeying him. And in this, God puts a new spirit in you. And in that spirit, God, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, water and spirit, born again. It's all here in the Old Testament, but Nicodemus missed it. Nicodemus is actually proof to us that you can know the word of God and the words of God more than even anyone else and still miss God. 
You can know the word and still miss salvation. Flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus says, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And he continues, he says, listen, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is like, listen, just as you don't see physically the, the, the wind, you can see its effects in the same way. You don't physically see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit when someone's born of the Spirit. And what are the effects of the Spirit? Well, ultimately, it's a radically transformed life, right? It's a life of now pursuing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, obeying Jesus, trusting Jesus, growing in the character of Jesus and the works of Jesus and the fruit of God's Spirit. You can see it. You can see that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work. It's not behavior modification. It's transformation. And to all this, Nicodemus responds to Jesus and he says, how can this be? How, how can this be a thing? You, you got to remember here that, that for years, Nicodemus has been teaching people that the way you become part of God's kingdom is, is by birthright as a Jew and following all the laws and living righteously. And now Jesus is telling him that this is not the way that he has been wrong about this. That this is not about his work. It's about God's work in him. That, that his natural birth as a Jew will not save him. That his standing as this devout, righteous, law-following leader will not save him. That he stands before God the same as every other person. He's the same as everybody else. He's the same as that wicked, rebellious, hurtful, homeless drunkard out on the street. He's no different. He's no better. He's no deserve, more deserving. He must be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. And this is different from what he's ever known. Jesus responds in verse 10. He says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Jesus is telling Nicodemus here something that he's missed, right? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the link between heaven and earth. I'm the link between a dead heart and new spiritual birth. I'm the only one with the authority to take God's truth and give it because I alone have been to heaven and come to earth. I'm the one. And the reason you don't receive this is because you don't receive me. This is what Nicodemus missed and really what so many people miss when it comes to Jesus. See, Nicodemus thinks that he's just having a conversation with another teacher. And as long as you just see Jesus as another teacher, you can't be born again. If you only see Jesus as a teacher, you will only see him as someone who comes to add value or significance or something else to your life to help you advance, to help you get what you want, to help you fulfill your desires and your dreams and your agenda, right? But this is not a conversation between a teacher and another teacher. This is a conversation between a teacher and the Savior. And no matter what you come to God with or without, None of that changes your need of him as Savior. 
Jesus doesn't come to add to your life. Jesus is life. Nicodemus, you keep thinking you have to try harder, but salvation, new birth, it's not about trying harder. It's about starting over. It's about being born again. It's not an addition to your old life. It is new life altogether in God through Jesus. And it can only be received by grace, not by works. And and to drive this point home, Jesus finishes with this powerful reminder that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus in verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is a story that's from Numbers chapter 21. And Nicodemus would have been familiar with this, where, where the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they, they had been sinning against God and building idols, uh, false idols. And so poisonous snakes were sent right into them and uh, into their camp. And they began biting people and people were dying from this. And so they cried out to Moses and, and Moses turns and he cries out to God and God tells him to, to go and take a pole and to fashion a bronze snake on the pole and tell the people, uh, anybody who's been bitten, to look upon this snake, to look up to the snake that's lifted up on this pole and anyone who does that will live. Anyone who does that will be saved. And guess what? It works, <laughs> okay? It, it, it actually works. Someone would be bitten and, and they would look up to that bronze snake and they would live. This is an amazing story. I would totally recommend that if you have any time during the week that, that you take a little time and you look at that story. It's super amazing. But, but, but Jesus says here, he says, just as those people looked up to the snake that it, were lifted up and were saved, I too am gonna be lifted up talking about the cross here, and anyone who looks to me, who looks to my finished work on the cross for their sin will be saved. By looking upon Jesus, that's where you're gonna find new life. That's where you're gonna find new birth. That's where you'll be born again. There was a story about a young man who had bought his first car and he just, he loved this car. Okay, I, if you remember back to maybe a season of your life when you got your first car and you were young, like what, how amazing you maybe thought that was. And, and, and this guy loved showing off his new car. And so, so he would spend lots of time, lots of energy washing this car. I mean, religiously taking care of this car, uh, you know, waxing his car, taking extra time, you know, to get the wheels just right, right? Adding cool effects to the car, new lights, new decals. He just really wanted to make this car beautiful so that people would admire this car as it walked uh, or as he drove by. And, and one day he's, he's driving along on the road and the car just seizes up. All the lights on the dashboard come up and, he, and he's got to pull over and, and ultimately he gets the car towed and, and a repair text checks out the car and after a little bit comes out and says to him, hey, um, when, when's the last time you changed the oil on this car? And, and a little bit dumbfounded, the young man says, what? The oil? I, I mean, never. I, no one ever told me that I was supposed to do that. And the repair tech shakes his head and he said, well, I mean, that explains it. I, I'm sorry to tell you, but your engine is fried. I mean, it's done. You need a whole new engine for this car. See, see, while he was taking meticulous care of the outside of that car, he was completely neglecting the inside, which is what really mattered. 
No one had ever told him that the point was the inside. Nicodemus has spent his entire life cleaning and polishing what was on the outside. But no one had ever told him that it was the inside that mattered most until this day and this moment with Jesus. And Jesus tells him that the outside is not the point, Nicodemus. It's not your performance. It's not your good works or your religious acts. What matters more than all else is what's on the inside. What matters is that you have been born again, that you've been radically transformed by the grace of God, by receiving Jesus and with the Holy, Holy Spirit residing in you, alive in you. That's what matters. And interestingly, this is where the conversation ends with Nicodemus. What will he do with these words from Jesus? How will he respond? Well, the last time we hear about Nicodemus is at the end of John's gospel. After Jesus has been crucified on the cross and pretty much all of his disciples have abandoned him and run away in fear for their own lives because of their association with Jesus, no one stood up for him. Essentially, Jesus died alone. And after he died and everyone had left, listen to this, John chapter 19, starting in verse 38, tells us, says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph, listen, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Mark 15 actually tells us that Joseph was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, just like Nicodemus. So he's part of that same elite group, but is a secret disciple of Jesus. It says, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now listen, right here, verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Remember back in verse two, when Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. I, I think he was talking about Joseph here. I think perhaps these two men were drawn to Jesus and at some, some point along their journey and experiencing Jesus, they realized he is the one. He, he is the Messiah. He is the life. Maybe it was even when Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on that cross that he was reminded of Jesus' words to him. But at some point in time, these two were born again and became his disciples. And when all the other disciples who had loudly proclaimed how committed they were to Jesus and, right, and how they would die for him, when all of those guys had run away, look who shows up. They chose this moment to no longer be secret disciples of Jesus. Everyone would have seen them take Jesus' body from that place. It goes on, it says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was uh, the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The other gospels actually tell us that, that this tomb, this garden, was actually in Joseph of Arimathea's garden. You might say, well, why is this such a big deal? Well, part of the reason it's such a big deal is because men who were crucified, people who were crucified didn't get burials, okay? 
They were the worst of the worst and needed to be treated, according to the Romans, as garbage. So, so their bodies were taken off of crosses and thrown in a trash heap for animals and birds to dispose of. These two once secret disciples chose this moment to put their allegiance to Jesus on full display for everybody to see. Jesus says to us in John chapter 14, 6, he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No, no one comes into the kingdom of God except through me. No one comes into the family of God except through me. No one is saved by any other way but through me. No one is born again except through me. If you are relying on yourself your good works, your religious affiliation, your biblical knowledge, your family line, whatever, to receive God's life in his kingdom, it does not work. You cannot do it. If it couldn't work for Nicodemus, it will not work for you. You must be born again. And this is Jesus' invitation to every single one of you today. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, Jesus' invitation to you is to receive him, to turn from sin and self and to put your trust in him and receive new birth, new life, his life for you. That's for you today. And, and if you're here, if you're watching and you've already done that and you've received that birth, then, then Jesus is like, go live that, right? Live that out, put that on display. I, I want to close by just leaving you with a few questions to consider this morning and whether you want to take some time to journal those or, or, or to have some conversation with whoever you're gathered with today or in your house church. Uh, three questions for you uh, that I hope sort of stir your heart a little bit and have foster some good conversation. First question is this, what's your biggest takeaway take from today's message? As you hear this story of Nicodemus, what is the one thing that most resonates in your heart and why? why? Why do you suppose that is? That's the first question. Second question for you is, have you been born again? Have you received new life in Jesus? And, and if you haven't received that, then, then what's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus? If you're willing to be honest about that. And, and if you have, what has been the evidence of new birth in your life? What, how, what has been the evidence? What has been the fruit of that new birth for you? Thirdly, lastly, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And what does that look like in your life currently? If, if invited into this space, this new birth is following Jesus, what does that mean and how is that being lived out in your life? I'm gonna close this in prayer and, and afterwards you can feel free to dig in those questions or, or we'll close in our, with worship. If you guys just pray with me. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thanks God just for truth. God, I pray that you Holy Spirit would move in every single heart today. Lord, to receive you and new life in you. God, that every one of us, God, would recognize today that it's not our works. It's not our righteousness. It's not our deeds. It's not our behaviors, Lord God, that earn us your favor. It's none of those things, God, that earn us 
our, our salvation, that earn us, God, heaven. Lord, Lord, that it's only a gift of your grace and by receiving you and what you have done on our behalf. God, would you minister in every heart, Lord, reveal yourself in a powerful way. And God, I pray that in our time together and sharing, uh, Lord, that you would use us to encourage one another and bless one another and, and point one another to you in your heart. God, I pray that this word, even as we go uh, from this time together, Lord, would, would just produce a good fruit in us, God, that it would just churn in our heart and our spirit, God, that you would use it to reveal things to us, expose things in us, and God, to lead us to you. We bless you today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. We'll go ahead and, and take a little bit of time to, to dig in those questions or hang on for just a minute and we're gonna wrap up with our last song. God bless you guys.